Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Velazquez really developed quite a particular personal manner very early. It must have been very clear that this was an innate talent. In this episode, I speak with Getty Museum curator Anne Woollett about the work and early biographies of 17th century Spanish painter Diego Velazquez. Velazquez was the greatest Spanish painter of the 17th century. Of all the paintings in the Prado, Spain's principal national art museum, Velázquez Las Meninas is the most memorable of his paintings, unless you prefer his Triumph of Bacchus, or his Apollo at the Forge of Vulcan, or the Surrender of Breda, or the Spinners, or even the strange and wonderful Mars, God of War. Then if you're in the National Gallery of London, you might think Velázquez Rocca Venus to be his greatest painting, or if in the National Galleries of Scotland, his An Old Woman Cooking Eggs, or if in Apsley House London, his Water Cellar of Seville, or if in the United States, the Metropolitan Museum's Wanda Perea, the powerful image of a grand and confident black man, the enslaved assistant to Velázquez, whom the painter released from bondage four years later. Such is the quality of Velázquez's paintings that no one can agree on which is the most important. In this episode, I'll be discussing Velázquez's life and work with Getty curator of paintings Anne Woollett. The occasion is the recent publication by the Getty of The Lives of Velázquez, as written by Francisco Pacheco in 1649 and Antonio Palomino in 1724. These two early biographical accounts form the basis of our understanding of Velázquez's life and are published here together for the first time. And thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. It's a pleasure. Now, we last spoke about a similar Getty publication of The Three Lives of Rembrandt, with Velázquez and Rubens and perhaps Poussin, the greatest painter of the 17th century. Which of the two painters do you think Rembrandt and Velázquez was the most important in his day and is so now? Well, Jim, this is a fascinating question, and I think we must consider their individual contexts. I imagine that Velázquez, who achieved fame and the warm patronage of his sovereign, Philip IV of Spain, was the preeminent painter of his day in Spain. Rembrandt, of course, marvelous painter, widely regarded, certainly by mid-career, very well received in the Netherlands, uh, but perhaps not quite as eminent, did not have the noble status or the association with the court that Velázquez did. Would they have known of each other at this time? I think it's possible that Velázquez may have known Rembrandt through his prints. Velázquez was extremely interested in other painters of his own time and preceding generations, so I can imagine that he would have been aware of Rembrandt, but perhaps not to have known any of his works firsthand. Uh, Pacheco's Life of the Artist was published as part of a treatise on the art of painting, which appeared in 1649, five years after Pacheco died and 11 years before Velázquez died. It wasn't the first such Spanish treatise, I gather. The court artist Vincente Carducho published his dialogues on painting in 1633. What was the court culture like that these two men would be involved in it and be writing lives of the artist, and how international was it? Well, the court in Spain is a remarkable uh, institution at this moment. It's politically not having a, a very easy time at the beginning of the 17th century. Uh, it's losing control over its holdings in the New World somewhat. Uh, it's fighting various skirmishes uh, to settle the sovereignty between the North and South Netherlands. Uh, there are quite uh, severe counter-reformation and political events going on in Spain. But at the court, 
in terms of a cultural center, there's an incredibly vivid, lively uh, atmosphere because of the interests of Philip IV, who becomes king in 1621 at the age of 16. And he is the heir to uh, a Habsburg legacy of collecting that means he's surrounded and has been since birth, essentially, by an extraordinary collection of works of art, tapestries, um, and remarkable paintings, Italian paintings of the Renaissance, Flemish paintings by Rubens and his contemporaries. Uh, And there's a great love of poetry and theater. So in Madrid, there is a, a real center for learning and for the visual arts. So for artists who are in Spain and making their careers, uh, this is a natural center to gravitate to. But there's also a very strong sense of humanist learning in Spain. And so Velázquez's teacher and first biographer, Pacheco, is a remarkably learned man. And it's at his studio in Seville that Velázquez is introduced to a great range of theoretical texts, uh, the associated arts, philosophy and mathematics and geometry and things. Uh, All of these are important components to painting. But, you know, Pacheco is perceived already uh, by the time he's uh, writing as a great intellect, as someone who is an important theoretician. So he undertakes a treatise uh, to, in sense, promote the nobility of the art of painting. He wants to take what is in Spain at that time really perceived as a manual art, if you will, really a craft, um, wants to follow the route that's already been taken by theoreticians in Italy particular and associate painting with poetry, with the mind. And so uh, in his treatise, he he focuses primarily on three painters, one of whom is Peter Paul Rubens, and then the third painter is his disciple Velázquez, who's already shown unbelievable promise and goes on t- to have a, an extraordinary career by the time that uh, Pacheco dies and then the treatise is published in 1649. Tell us about Velázquez's early life, that is, before he comes to the court. So Velázquez's career begins in Seville. This is a very large city, a very wealthy city, a city that has benefited from the connections with uh, Spain's trade with the New World, particularly silver from Mexico and from Peru. So it's a diverse place. Uh, It's an active artistic center. And Velázquez apparently starts with another master, in fact, Herrera, um, who has a drier style, shall we say, a very a restricted, constrained style that really is in keeping with the most orthodox views of of Catholicism and its relationship to the visual arts, so doctrinal uh, style. Uh, but this master seems to have a difficult personality, and uh, Velázquez moves to the more amenable and the presumably much warmer and, and more exciting uh, atelier of Pacheco. How does one at a young age, leave the hometown and make his way to the capital city and then make a way into the atelier of an important artist? Well, you know, Velázquez has his main training in Seville. Um, and so it's, it's after he's completed his six years, I believe, apprenticeship with Pacheco that he makes his way to Madrid. And it's on uh, Pacheco's uh, recommendation, it seems, that he's able to be introduced. So it's a bit like having letters of recommendation um, to figures there at court that Pacheco was familiar with. Yeah. And by the time that he goes to Madrid in 1622-23, he is already an independent master. He has the license to practice painting, and he has married his master's daughter. So he's well on his way to 
to being an independent painter in his own right, but he begins with trying to enter this uh, more uh, exalted sphere, if you will, of the court. And then quite quickly, Pacheco recognizes that he's a better painter than Pacheco himself is, and he begins his account of Velázquez with a kind of an apology. He says, I do not consider it a disgrace that the pupil, by which he meant Velázquez, surpasses the master, by which he meant himself, this being the truth which is greater. What was it like, I I wonder, for him to see this young rising star eclipse him as he makes his way through the court process? It must have been very thrilling in a sense that Pacheco genuinely appears to have been not just an admirer of Velázquez's talent, but close to him as a person. So in a sense, Velázquez is representing all that Pacheco embodied, his learning and his belief in the proper foundations of artistic training, uh, which were, of course, to be observant, to to represent life, uh, but also to have been diligent in studying the work of previous artists and the work of antiquity. So he felt uh, that he had given his student a remarkable basis for his success, and then to have that manifest itself would have been immensely gratifying. And he enjoyed moderate success as a painter, but his student, Velazquez, really developed a, quite a particular personal manner very early. And this basis of observing life around him and painting what one sees, this uh, remarkable sense of reality, was something that he seems to have devised himself. His his early art is not particularly influenced by Pacheco's manner in any way. Mm-hmm. So this is very fascinating, and it, it must have been very clear to Pacheco and to others around him that this was an innate talent, someone who was so rare that essentially begins to paint in an entirely new manner, although one, of course, it's related to things that uh, Velasquez had been exposed to, but nonetheless represented a a really specific and remarkable way of painting. Yeah. Um, But what is it like when you come to the court? Are you just painting away and giving a kind of license to mature as as a young painter and then you may be giving a certain assignment and you're sort of tested by that assignment to see if you can then take on the next assignment, which might be a better assignment. And how many other artists like him would there have been in the court? Well, so Velazquez's trajectory, as told by Pacheco, for example, is fascinating because it seems to hinge on very specific moments of approbation and excitement. So there are the tales of Pacheco asking Velazquez to paint Fonseca, the poet at the court, and this is not a a painting that exists anymore, but nonetheless was a remarkable likeness by all accounts and very striking. And then it led to another portrait, in fact, that was shown more widely to members of the court, allegedly also to the king and queen, who then immediately said, apparently, we want this artist to work for us, and we want him to paint our children. And that was a step that was going to be a bit further down the road. It was more appropriate for Velasquez to start with the king himself, and this follows shortly thereafter. So at least as told in these sources, it's a very short, uh, direct trajectory to the top for Velasquez uh, once he is able to demonstrate this extraordinary presence and psychological insight that he brings to his portraiture. And from that position and from the honor he acquires from those early successes, shall we say, he progresses up the ladder. And Pacheco and after him Palomino are very clear in narrating that uh, steady climb, each 
office, each honor that he's given by the king allows him greater proximity to the sovereign, uh, greater intimacy, if you will, to the functions of the court, to its collections, greater responsibilities, surely. But uh, it becomes clear that, you know, Velazquez demonstrates through his personality and his art that he's compatible with the desires of the king and his enthusiasm for painting. As he climbed the ladder, would he then take on uh, assistance himself and therefore his studio would become larger than just a studio for a single artist? Or how quickly does he become part of a larger scheme of painting in the court? So Velasquez did maintain a studio. He certainly engaged some assistants to work with him. The Spanish court didn't have a single court artist. There were a number of other artists at the court. And it's very interesting at the beginning of Velasquez's time there, there's some envy, um, I think, at his immediate success and preferment, if you will. And there were some unpleasant rumors spread. And there was a, a tale told by the biographers of a competition that was held between the court painters as to who was really superior in certain ways. And and Velasquez was the clear winner of the four. But, you know, it speaks to um, a rather closed environment if you were working for the court, an environment that really sustained competition sometimes within itself. Uh, But that was a sort of a necessary process in order to establish oneself and to achieve these new levels of status, which were so important for painters. Velasquez seems to have sought with great vigor and persistence greater status for himself and his family, something that would confirm the noble status that he felt was due to him and to his lineage. Yeah. So he um, makes his way to the court in 1623, and by which time he's 24 years old or so. And then he's given an opportunity to go to Italy six years later, 1629, so he's 30 years old. No doubt he's got a family, no doubt he has children, and he certainly has a wife. What does it mean for him to, I suppose, leave them behind and then go off in the company of some other court members to uh, Italy with the simple instruction, I think, to sort of learn from the great Italian masters. Is that an extraordinary thing? It seems to be a singular mark of favor by the king, Philip IV, uh, in his uh, wish to advance Velazquez's uh, understanding of the wider realm of European painting, to give him the opportunity to experience additional examples of the artists that he'd already grown to know through the royal collections in Spain, uh, Titian, Tintoretto, Veronese, other painters in Rome, Raphael. And so to be told, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to Italy and here's your stipend. Um, and he had some responsibilities, some diplomatic responsibilities, so to speak, but uh, really he was representing the king of Spain. Uh, but he was also there in that capacity to uh, advance his familiarity with these important precursors and ultimately to advise the king um, through his greater knowledge of, the, of antiquity and of the Italian Renaissance in particular. Advise the king on building his collection? Advise the king on building the collection. Ultimately, after the king of England, Charles I, is beheaded, his collection comes up at auction years later, and uh, Philip IV buys a large number of works. And, in fact, Velasquez produces a report, a very learned and detailed report on the works of art that had been acquired in that group, for example. So uh, the the king, uh, Philip IV, is expanding his collection all the time. He's coming to a greater understanding of what is already there. Um, the great number of courtiers who are, in some sense, trying to keep up <laughs> with the monarch, um, they're amassing important collections of their own. So uh, Velasquez is able to, in a way, position himself as uh, an expert painter. So when he gets to Italy, he goes first to Venice, 
where he sees, among other things, Titian, Veronese, Tintoretto, as you say, uh, and then to Ferrara, and then on to Rome. And in Rome, he meets the cardinal and the great connoisseur, Francesco Barberini, great patron of Bernini, uh, and nephew to the pope. After that, he goes to Naples. And so what is the sequence? And why would he choose those particular cities? Why did he not go to Florence, for example? It's fascinating. He didn't go to Florence on this trip, and he rectifies that on, on his second uh, journey to Italy. But I think that you know he's aided by contacts uh, given to him by the court. He also has particular artistic interests. He had always admired Titian's manner of painting, Veronese, this looser, visible brushstroke, which is a, an aspect of painting that he himself followed. And so these were areas where he spent the most time. Bologna, of course, a, a great uh, academy of painting. Rome, very important for artists uh, for decades, not only its holdings of Renaissance paintings, but extraordinary collections of antiquities that he, any artist worth his salt needed to be intimately familiar with. So Velasquez is there, as many artists had done before him, to draw after these works, to know them, to visit the private collections and the Vatican collections and see these things firsthand. Mm-hmm. Would he have met other artists that he could have had conversation with and might have learned something from uh, with regard to the painting that he was developing? It seems very likely that he would have been in a very good company of highly specialized elite artists, people he would have met through the auspices of the Spanish agents that were with him and his hosts at the Vatican, uh, the clergymen who assisted him, nephews to the Pope, this sort of thing. Um, These are the sources for contacts like this. So this trip to Italy is about a year long? Is it a brief trip? It's a brief trip, very intensive. Apparently the king begins to miss him and asks him to return over and over, and Velasquez takes a little bit of time coming home, but he does come home. So we learn that he comes home by way of Pacheco's uh, account of uh, Velasquez's career, but the account itself ends rather abruptly uh, with just a few remarks about still life painting, even rather modestly praising his own, that is Pacheco's still life painting. What do you make of the ending, the kind of abrupt ending of this? It's a fascinating ending. It's very poetic uh, at a certain point where there's sort of a eulogy almost for Velazquez and the uh, trope is brought up again of Alexander the Great and Apelles. This is a kind of recurring theme of this uh, painter prototype from antiquity. And then following that, the kind of musing on still life, a very important aspect of painting in Seville in a way that brings us back to Velazquez's roots and his origins and links him once again to this hometown and also, I think, in a way to Pacheco's studio. It's unclear, I think, precisely why Pacheco's account appears when it does, because uh, it appears during Velasquez's second Italian trip. So it's possible that the mechanisms for its publishing were such that this is the state of the manuscript that it was in. Yeah. It appears in 1649, and Velasquez himself dies in 1660, so 11 years later. Uh, and then the second life that we have in this Getty-published book is by Antonio Palomino, and he wrote his account of Velasquez's life much later in 1724, 64 years after the painter died. Tell us about Palomino and, and why it was that he was moved to write this life of Velasquez so long after the painter died. Well, Palomino is a painter himself, fairly distinguished career, in fact, working for then King Charles II. He has achieved some renown as a fresco painter, particularly for the court, but he painted canvas paintings and things. So he's very involved 
already with representing the noble status of painting at the highest levels. And he wanted also, much as Pacheco had, to shed light on this profession and the proximity it held to the great liberal arts. At this point in Spain, this is a well-established theoretical basis. But Palomino had access to various sources, lives of other artists. And so he writes Parnassus, as he calls it, which essentially celebrates this great legacy of painting in Spain. And by far, its greatest proponent in his eyes is Diego Velazquez. And the biography is really detailed. It's extraordinarily long for an artist's biography, in that way very charming, because it leaves no stone unturned, one feels, uh, and tells everything as much as possible in great detail. Much of his account relying on Pacheco's original treatise. Uh, but also it appears that there were some other biographies of Velazquez in process, perhaps, that had never been published. Uh, one by uh, Juan de Alfaro, who was Velazquez's student and someone that Palomino knew and met and perhaps even saw some kind of document uh, that sort of detailed other aspects of Velazquez's life. You know, Palomino talks about Velazquez and sort of compares it to earlier masters with whom uh, Velazquez was uh, quite impressed, Raphael, for example. And he quotes Velazquez saying that Velazquez himself preferred to be first in that sort of coarseness than second in delicacy. This was a reference to Velazquez's coarse subject matter, his paintings of rustic subjects, which he was described as having painted with great bravado and unusual lighting and color. And then Palomino compares him to Caravaggio. Was that a common comparison at the time? Well, yes, because, you know, Velazquez represented this big shift, essentially, and his emphasis on subjects taken from life, uh, painted with great immediacy, and also this incredible command of light, uh, which is very direct and, and merciless, if you will, on certain objects, and then more subtle, sometimes over the features of his figures. This was seen to be a parallel to Caravaggio, though I, not necessarily really, we would say today, direct influence of Caravaggio. Caravaggio's works would maybe have been known to Velázquez through versions and things that were in Spain. And then once, of course, he was in Italy, he would have seen uh, paintings there. But by that time, he was a developed and advanced artist. But for biographers, that's a high compliment. It represented not only an ability to portray the world, but also a certain type of personality, uh, a personality that steps outside the expected path, the doctrinal path. And uh, that was not necessarily uh, a good thing for some of Velasquez's critics earlier in his own lifetime. Uh, there is a Carduccio, I believe, as the theoretician and painter uh, who during Velasquez's lifetime was very critical and thought that Caravaggio represented a sort of unchristian artist and it was a very coarse figure. Um, and so by comparing Velasquez to him, that was meant as a great criticism. But decades later, uh, for painters, you know, that mastery of light, of emotion, of immediacy that uh, Caravaggio represented could be pointed to in Velazquez's mm -hmm. work. And probably it was characteristic of the taste of the court, uh, or at least of the king. I mean, the king wouldn't have encouraged Velazquez to paint pictures he wasn't pleased with. So is there a kind of court taste that one can identify as this kind of a Velazquez taste or even a neo-Caravaggesque taste? The taste at the court, which is represented in their patronage of Velazquez, really was a tremendous appreciation for the technical facility that he exhibited in his paintings. 
this brushwork that's both descriptive but loose. It's a, an evocative type of brushwork that represented kind of an extension of taste that existed in the Habsburg house, if you will, for a long time, going back to their patronage of great artists like Titian. So continuity for the Habsburgs and for Philip IV was very important, even in artistic taste, mm-hmm. uh, linking his ability to find an artist, the equivalent of Titian in his own time, would have been significant. And he was fortunate <laughs> that Velázquez was there. He's able to generate a level of Spanish painting that transcended national boundaries in a way that sort of linked it to a larger continuum. And the manner of painting that was increasingly broken brushwork, remarkable palette, vivid colors, and yet capturing both the presence and the personality of the sitters, which was so important in portraiture, of course, was something that really was central to the needs of the Habsburg court. Yeah, Palomino gives us a, a lot of details about Velasquez's life as a court painter, including the portraits he painted, of course, of the king of his court and what he was paid for those portraits. And he briefly described the visit to the court by the painter and diplomat Rubens, Peter Paul Rubens. What role did Rubens play in the Spanish court at the time, and would he have met Velasquez at that time? Peter Paul Rubens was the court painter to the archdukes, Albert and Isabel Clara Eugenia, in the southern Netherlands, which was governed by Spain, at that point of part of Spanish territory, Habsburg territory. And he was one of the preeminent artists in Europe, known not only for his ingenuity as a painter, but also his intellect. And he was an extremely pious man. He had a tremendous standing um, in Europe and at the court in Brussels. And he sent as a diplomatic emissary to help bring peace uh, in the war between England and Spain. And he returns to Spain. He he makes a first visit in the early 1600s as a young artist. Um, But once he's in the court uh, at Brussels, he's sent again at the end of the second decade, uh, 1627-29. And he does meet Velasquez, and we know uh, that this was a kind of a great meeting of the minds, if you will. I think they were delighted with each other's company. I mean, they were both very austere men in certain ways. They had a great deal of gravitas, but immense knowledge of their art and other related subjects. So they must have had many enjoyable conversations. And it appears that while Rubens is in Spain, he is painting a number of portraits for his patrons in the southern Netherlands, uh, but he's painting them in Velasquez's studio. Ah. And together, they discussed their appreciation for artists in the collection. They explored monuments. They went to the monastery of El Escorial, which is north of Madrid. Uh, This is a spectacular, large monastery built by Philip II in the late 16th century, uh, where many of the Spanish royal collections were. So they viewed paintings there together. Uh, There are stories of them riding in the landscape uh, around El Escorial, which is a mountainous area. So uh, it it makes for a wonderful picture of these two great, great artists, Uh, Rubens a little bit older than uh, Velazquez, but still, you know, both working in the prime of their careers. Yeah. Do I remember this, that Rubens was encouraging Velazquez to go to Italy on the first trip to Italy? It does seem that Rubens's time in Madrid with Velazquez must have given additional impetus, perhaps, to his desire to travel to Italy. 
Now, now, Palomino tells us more about this trip than Pacheco did. He gives some great detail about it. He talks about uh, Velasquez's love of Tintoretto, his visit to the Academia, where he saw paintings by Titian, Veronese, Tintoretto, Giovanni Bellini, and where he made a copy of a painting by Tintoretto, which is now lost. Uh, Palomino writes similarly of Velasquez's visit to Rome, where he saw Raphael Stanza and Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling, after which he made a number of drawings. How important is this kind of information for our understanding of Velasquez's development as, as an artist? It surely had a great impact on Velázquez to see these essential masterpieces that he had studied and heard about for so long, to spend time in the Stanza at the Vatican and to see Raphael's work to experience it firsthand uh, would have been profoundly uh, important for him. Artistically, it offered these concrete examples of large decorations, these large fresco cycles and history scenes on a grand scale, Mm. these more sculptural forms of narrative. It also spoke to Velasquez's status. He was given apartments in the Vatican that were frescoed, we're told, by Palomino, by Federico Zuccaro, you know, very important artist working in Rome, a theoretician himself. Now, Palomino compares Velasquez on his return, his relations with the Spanish court, by comparing them to the likes of Alexander the Great's relations with the painter Apelles and Charles V's relationship with Titian. So he sort of rhetorically sets him up to be an extremely important painter. Velasquez seems to have enjoyed a very remarkable and perhaps even personal relationship on some level with his sovereign, Philip IV. Philip had a deep passion for painting. He was interested in the process of painting, we're told, if these biographical accounts can be relied on, and there's no reason to dispute them particularly, that Philip IV came to Velazquez's studio to watch him paint. And there are precedents for this in the lives of other artists, but it speaks to the proximity that Philip liked to keep his uh, painter in with him and to the ease with which they came to know each other over many years. This probably wasn't true at the beginning of Velazquez's time in the court, but over time there was a trust and a sort of recognition there. And a fluidity, if you will, between kind of creation and uh, the patron's uh, input. So although our biographers, Pacheco and Palomino, are in fact using a well-known construct, this idea of the great painter of classical antiquity, Apelles, uh, painting with his patron Alexander the Great standing beside him, uh, it's a wonderful uh, relationship that, that may actually have been enacted in the Spanish court. Yeah. Uh, Palomino goes on to describe particular paintings by Velázquez in, in quite some detail, and they're significant, I think, because they help us see th- through the eyes of an 18th century person what they valued in the work of, of the earlier 17th century Velázquez. I'll just read a little bit of this because it's such a moving, detailed, and accurate description of this painting. It's of a count, a Count of Oliveras, uh, Gaspar de Guzman. He says, Don Diego Velázquez painted another portrait of his great protector in Messinas, meaning a patron, Don Gaspar de Guzman, third Count of Olivares, mounted on a fiery Andalusian horse that had drunk from the Betis not only the swiftness of the course of its waters, but also the majesty of their flow, covering the silver, the gold of the bridle with the froth of his mouth, a thing that the ancient and eminent protogenes found difficult to imitate. The Count is dressed in armor, inlaid with gold. He wears a hat with splendid plumes, and in his hand is a general's baton. He seems to sweat from the weight of his armor and the labors of combat as he races during the battle. 
Farther back can be described the troops of both armies, where one can admire the fury of the horses and the fearlessness of the combatants, and it seems that one can see the dust, look at the smoke, hear the clangor, and fear the carnage. This portrait is life-size and one of the largest paintings done by Velázquez. So that here's the sense of Velázquez as an accurate to painter of observed reality, and not only just the, the look and appearance of it, the sweaty leather and the clash of the silver and the gold, but uh, also the kind of intent of the figure that uh, is going to be leading this charge into battle. That kind of 18th century response to Velázquez makes us understand that some of the value that this man saw in the work of Velázquez and how Velázquez distinguished himself as a painter at that time. Well, Palomino describes a truly vivid, visceral kind of equestrian portrait that Velázquez was a true master of generating for the court. This is one of a series of equestrian portraits, and so each one had to have a kind of character. And in this case, the equestrian portrait embodies the fierceness of one of the king's most important courtiers, you know, the man who's leading his armies into battle. So it does speak to a really Baroque sensibility, doesn't it, that it's a robust, vigorous, energetic, emotion kind of uh, painting, a portrait that is both portrait and history painting. And somehow it sounds like also uh, almost an observation of daily life. It's so vivid down to these details that uh, were so marvelous. You get the feeling that Palomino, as an author, uh, and one who's probably classically trained in the rhetorics of the day and so forth, is moved to a kind of ekphrasis or a poetic challenge to match the visual appearance uh, with this literary description. And I wondered how much that was a device that, that he was challenged to, because one wanted from Palomino uh, other observations, other descriptions of paintings by Velázquez, which one doesn't get, uh, as one gets to such detail in this one. This is certainly a case where Palomino took the opportunity to breathe life into a description of a painting for his readers in a way taking one of the most dynamic of the equestrian portraits in the group to convey sort of Velázquez's mastery. It's interesting that Palomino was criticized later for not being uh, perhaps the most silver-tongued author um, and compared with other artistic biographers like Vasari, who was always full of anecdotes and and things that sketch the personality of an artist, even if they were um, small personal details. But in certain cases, as in this one, it's a very detailed, invigorating engagement with Velasquez. And it certainly does make one wish that there were deeper analyses sometimes of other paintings. But it's notable for the way it stands out and for the way it brings us almost immediately into that court atmosphere. Yeah. Now, Palomino does describe in some detail Velasquez's second trip to Italy in 1648, where he goes to buy paintings and antique sculptures and make casts of some of the more famous sculptures. This, I suppose, was a charge given him by the court. Essentially, it provides a great kind of compendium. These works from the past were being discovered you know, more and more, so... To own them and to possess them soon was to bring this kind of a higher level of erudition to to the court. Yeah, I, I don't think that it was written in here which works Velasquez acquired and brought back to, for us to sort of document their provenance. I think it's difficult to know for sure. Sometimes from the descriptions, exactly which pieces he brought back and where they are, whether they correspond to something now. Uh, but there are some lists and descriptions, I think, for us to to look at some inventory descriptions. Mm-hmm. Now, Palomino does describe the trip himself in some more detail, so that we know about the second trip at all, but we also know more detail about the trip. We know that he went to Milan, and he saw Leonardo's Last Supper. 
Then he, again, he went to Venice where he bought paintings said to be by Tintoretto. I suppose proved not to be by Tintoretto later, but nevertheless he was ambitious, and the court instructed him to be so ambitious. Uh, then he went to Bologna, Modena, Florence, Parma, Rome, where he painted the Pope, which the picture is now in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Palomino noted the antique sculptures that Velasco's bought, and uh, including the Alwaquan and Farnese Hercules, the Ariadne, Niobid, and many more. How important is this information in helping us understand the development of Velasco's own paintings, but more generally about the sort of Spanish court taste at the time? Well, in this capacity is really the most important painter in Spain and working on the direction of the sovereign. Velasquez is obtaining for the court, but also for the larger realm, if you will, some of the key foundational pieces that are important for the theoretical understanding of drawing, sculpture, and painting. So he's obtaining important pieces that represent the commitment of the court to the arts and to uh, the classical past and to uh, erudite preparation of of the visual arts. He's, in a sense, acting as an agent, an artistic agent for the Spanish court, for the most part in this case, I think, building the collections, acquiring things that have been difficult to obtain in the past, using his stature and his knowledge and his interest to find the best pieces. So in this way, he's a, an artistic diplomat in the way that many artists had been, like, Rubens. Right, right, right. One gets a sense that there's at least one example of a work that he would have seen, maybe even acquired in another form, um, and then painted a picture after it, and that's the hermaphrodite reclining on a couch. And one thinks of that in relationship to his Rocca Venus. Well, the Rocca Venus is such a complex work of art that relates to many things that Velasquez is interested in at the time. And the relationship to an antique sculpture that absolutely fascinated artists found it incredibly beautiful and intriguing, a figure that you see from the front and the back um, and that is meaningful, you know, for the fact that you can see both sides. And then to have Velasquez paint a painting where we, the viewer, have access to one side of this incredibly beautiful figure and are in some ways sort of denied the full view <laughs> because the, the mirror that Cupid holds up just gives us a view of her beautiful face. So there was a a real interest in the command of the figure in space, of course. Uh, but when Velasquez is painting Venus at her toilet, the Brokaby Venus, he has many ideas that he's bringing together. So he's, in fact, referring to the wonderful tradition of the nude as it existed in the collections of uh, the monarchs, nudes painted by Rubens and by Titian, uh, that were held by the king in many cases in a particular area of the palace that was amongst the most private rooms uh, for the king to rest in after eating, for example. Um, there was a really little complexity to painting nudes in Spain still. So despite this artistic heritage and interest, uh, there were restrictions on doing this. Uh, this is the only surviving female nude by Velázquez. There are references to others that he painted. Uh, but this, the fact that this survives, this spectacular, remarkable painting, uh, really speaks volumes to his engagement with um, the significance of the subject. The relationship to the hermaphrodite is interesting in a sense, too, because apparently the Rokabi Venus was first owned not by Philip IV, but uh, the Marques del Carpio, his first minister, great collector, great Rubens aficionado, amongst other things. And the painting was in a gallery where it shared a wall with a 
16th century Venetian painter, which shows a Venus from the front. So there was a viewing experience that was achieved by the Rokeby Venus being seen in combination with an earlier work of art. So the front and back views were achieved actually in the collection itself. In two paintings, yeah. Um, you know, we, we after reading um, Palomino's account and description of paintings and, and knowing how accurate they were and how compelling they were, uh, one wants, as one reads the text, to come across Las Meninas because that's the great painting by Velázquez and one thinks that this is going to be a time in which we can reap the rewards of Palomino's rhetorical style and descriptive capacity. Uh, so we get to this painting and he writes about it and the painting of course is one that shows the artist pausing in the act of painting the portrait of the queen's maids of honor and he identifies the figures in the painting includes the king and the queen and as you said the king is known to have stopped into the studio to see Velázquez's work the king and the queen who are visible in the mirror in the back of the room and then we see Velázquez himself, who was shown having stepped back from the painting, looking at what he'd finished to that point. And he compares Velázquez's self-portrait to the work of the ancient Greek sculptor Phidias, who, in the words of Palomino, placed his portrait on the shield of a statue of the goddess Minerva that he had made, crafting it with such cunning that if it were removed from its place, the whole statue would come apart. Velázquez will endure from century to century. So this kind of, again, rhetorical linking of Velázquez back to ancient times, this kind of intelligence of the painter becoming manifest in the complexity of the painting itself, and this idea that now Velázquez will endure from century to century, this promotion of Velázquez at this time. Well, Palomino recognized, of course, the extraordinary achievement in this painting, and you know he chose to provide a very useful and close reading of the painting is a portrait, essentially a group portrait, uh, and a dynamic portrait, one that speaks across space, uh, which is an extremely fascinating artistic uh, invention by Velázquez. So uh, a very specific rendering of his studio um, into which has entered the family, sort of infiltrated, if you will. And then also, despite that great honor, there is a little bit of ambiguity because we do see the king and the queen reflected in a mirror at the back of the room. Where does that mean they are in relationship to us? Are we them? (laughs) That wouldn't be appropriate, and yet it seems we are uh, there as well. So Palomino, in a sense, takes Las Meninas in a very direct way, in a celebration of Velázquez's ability to paint reality, so to speak, but it's an artistic reality, one that's highly intellectual, also very elevated, and represents his immense skill and his intellect as he was able to convey it in something as important as a royal portrait. Of course, it's essentially a portrait of the Infanta. Uh, the child of the king and the queen, who's there at foreground in the picture. In, yes. Looking at us, as it were. Yes. Which is, of course, looking at the painter, because the painter's painting her. Um, it's one of these extraordinary paintings that's been of interest to people for centuries, and these people include some of the greatest minds working at the time. One thinks of Picasso as a painter, inspired by this painting, but also one thinks of art historians like Leo Steinberg, who could write a whole book about this painting and others. What is the hold that painting has on us in the 20th and 21st centuries? Well, really, it's a painting about looking and a viewing experience. And because Velázquez was able to achieve this remarkable intersection of a realistic interior and of tremendously beautiful and compelling portraits, kind of dialogue between the sitters as we see them, and then between those portrayed and those who are viewing. It's an endless cycle, it seems, of interaction between the work of art and the viewer. And I think that it's the type of painting that transcends its age because 
we are able to bring our own context of viewing, our own structures and strategies for understanding the artist process to it, and it sustains our <laughs> inspection. So is that an indication that you think that's the greatest Velázquez painting and one of the greatest paintings of the 17th century, maybe one of the greatest paintings of the modern era? Las Meninas really is just a towering achievement of of artistry. It it stands still today as a great testament to a long career uh, by an artist who brought tremendous powers of personal observation to great intellectual thought. And the painting was intended, I think, to represent, in a sense, this long career in which he engaged with the key questions in pursuit of painting as a noble art, as an intellectual activity, as a noble uh, profession. And it also, I think, speaks to a, an artistic personality in Velázquez that he had reached a level of acceptance within the court and proximity to a, the sovereign and a deep understanding of his patron's love of art that he was able to create an incredibly complex visual statement about not only his own status in the court, but his contribution to painting in Spain. And that he was able to do that uh, by bringing the king and the queen into the picture itself, and that kind of confidence that he had that the king and the queen would appreciate that and understand that. He was able to discern the, the correct boundaries. Velázquez seems to have mastered the art of appropriate behavior and appropriate decorum, very crucial in Baroque courts, was the appropriate behavior by those serving the sovereign. So he enjoyed an understanding of his patron's passions uh, for art and maybe other aspects of his personality. Uh, But he also knew when to remain clearly in his position as a subordinate. Now, Velázquez dies uh, four years later, and Palomino described the painter's funeral in great detail, noting the presence of the king at that funeral, and the burial of the painter's body in the vault of the royal secretary, his friend. And he cites a long and detailed epitaph on Velázquez's tomb, the many offices he held in the royal household, and the list of honors that were conferred upon him by the king, uh, Philip IV. The Getty publication of the lives of Velázquez is introduced by Michael Jacobs, a noted author and art historian whose book on Velázquez, Las Meninas, about which we've just been speaking, uh, was left unfinished at his death and has been well-reviewed as a creative meditation on the painting's many still unresolved mysteries of meaning. Uh, We get a sense of this in the closing of Jacob's introduction to the Getty book when he writes, Cut off increasingly in Madrid from public life, surrounded by one of Europe's most spectacular private art collections, and devising canvases in which the real and the otherworldly are effortlessly interwoven, Velázquez must have spent much of his later years escaping into a world which only a writer of fiction could ever attempt to record, that of his own fantasies. Tell us about Michael Jacobs himself, the writer who wrote the words I read. Well, Michael Jacobs is a highly regarded travel writer in particular, uh, but a trained art historian at the Cortal Institute, Jacobs, I think, was very passionate about Spain. He lived in Spain. Some of his earliest books are about the Golden Age in Spain. He wrote more widely on other topics as well. But he really returned frequently to the the core values of, of Spanish life, of the life of artists such as Velazquez, which represented complexity and deserved a deeper reading. And Las Meninas, I think, was a topic for Jacobs that was enormously intriguing and spoke to his own uh, area of interest. 
it's very tragic, in fact, that Jacobs's book on Las Meninas was left incomplete at his sudden and unexpected death. Uh, but it's published uh, as a testimony to his deep thinking and his deep passion for Spain and for the golden age of Spanish art. And no doubt for the complexity of the painting Las Meninas. So we have this book with two texts, one of the 17th century, the time of the life of the artist, and one then years later in the 18th century, and the introduction that we just talked about with Michael Jacobs. Uh, tell us what's your sense of the book and its contribution to the literature on Velázquez. That is, how important is it to bring Pacheco and Palomino back into the picture? It's a wonderful capsule of the two most important biographies of this outstanding preeminent artist. And, of course, it's very useful to have them together. Pacheco's shorter, pithier account next to a more detailed, longer account done the following century by Palomino. Both of these authors placing Velázquez in a pantheon. To read them side by side is, is a great pleasure. They both, I think, capture a sense of this remarkable uh, painter and his career and his career achievements. But I think, as Jacobs rightly points out in his introduction, there is this uh, insistent backbeat of the artist's uh, search for status and for his biographers, in fact, to record his achievements in that realm as well. So there's a real sense that it's still important and something of a struggle for a painter, despite his extraordinary talent, to be recognized and permanently entered into the culture and status of, of nobility in Spain. Well, Anne, thank you very much for this podcast interview. You know, it's always great fun to talk to you about the pictures and books. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.